Welcome to another post-retirement podcast special. I'm Peter B. Collins, and I did retire at the end of 2020, and since then, I have produced uh, three or four uh, special podcasts. I think this is the fourth, and today we are going to discuss 9-11, 20 years on. And as we begin, I want to dedicate this program to the memory of Ed Asner, the actor and activist who died yesterday. I'm recording here on Monday, August 30th. Ed Asner was 91, best known as an actor, the star of the Lou Grant TV show after he uh, became well-known for uh, being a sidekick on the Mary Tyler Moore show. But Ed Asner was so much more than that. He was a vital president of the Screen Actors Guild and I was a board member the national, on, the, on the national board of AFTRA, uh, a performing union that has merged with the Screen Actors Guild uh, in recent years. And uh, I knew Ed Asner just a little bit, interviewed him three or four times at the height of the war in Iraq during the Bush administration. And he, he was smart. He was uh, uh, very frank and direct. And uh, he provided leadership on many issues, including the issue we're going to discuss today, the contentious notion of the falsehoods that comprise the official narrative of the events of September 11, 2001. I also want to acknowledge that a longtime loyal listener, Del Leonard, nudged me to do this program. And in a few minutes, I'm going to introduce our guest, David Hughes from Britain, who wrote a powerful critique of the failure of academics, particularly those in the field of international relations, to do critical studies of the official narrative of 9-11. But before that, as I have in the past when I discussed 9-11, I like to make my position extremely clear. I do not shy away from being called a truther. But the 9-11 truth movement is not organized. There's no membership. There are no criteria. It's a volunteer group of people who challenge the official narrative. And there are some fringe voices who embrace theories that I find preposterous. There are people who advance ideas that are, frankly, <laughs> uh, impossible. But I'm not here to criticize others who are drawn to these same sets of issues. In my career, which started in, during the Watergate scandal of the Nixon administration back in the 1970s, I have focused on exposing cover-ups. By the very nature of a cover-up, if it involves more than two people, it's a conspiracy. And so I have seen it as my job to blow the cover off cover-ups, which will expose conspiracies by individuals, groups, governments. And so I do not fear being labeled a truther, a tinfoil hat, nutball, or any of those things. And we have seen the imposed orthodoxy 
that one cannot ask questions about 9-11. One cannot challenge the narrative that does not hold up to close scrutiny. That the word of the 9-11 Commission, as published in a best-selling book, is the last word on the events of that tragic day. And let me acknowledge that I take no pleasure in delving into the darkness that 9-11 inevitably leads us to. People died. Yes, planes were crashed into buildings. But there's so much more to the story. And the propagandized version version of these events that was used to launch the fateful invasion of Afghanistan, which is winding down in the most ignominious way as I speak. The deadline for the U.S. withdrawal is just about 24 hours from now. Then the elective adventure, misadventure in Iraq, which did not have weapons of mass destruction. That was another pack of lies, another pile of propaganda generated by the administration of President George W. Bush. And at the time, it was out of bounds to challenge the claim that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. We got past that big lie. And the vast majority of people now understand that that was fiction. And the whole premise for the invasion and occupation of Iraq was false. But people are unable to apply the same rational thinking, the same critical thinking, the same logical approach to the events of 9-11. Patriotism is challenged. And the weaponization of the term conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist, which is well documented, and Dr. Uh, our guest today, uh, Dr. David Harris, Hughes, I'm sorry, Dr. David Hughes, uh, he references the work of Professor Lance DeHaven-Smith in his well-researched academic paper. I have an interview with Lance DeHaven-Smith. You can find it at peterbcollins.com. Just put Lance DeHaven-Smith in the search window. The term conspiracy theory was weaponized by the CIA, amplified by its friends in the corporate media back in the 1960s and 70s because people weren't buying the false claims of the Warren Commission on the official narrative of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. That legacy continues to this day. Later in our conversation with Dr. Hughes, we're going to reference the battle that Spike Lee, the filmmaker, has just lost. He produced a four-part series about 9-11 for HBO. And because of pushback from corporate media gatekeepers, including the New York Times. And just this morning, I saw a similar push from Vanity Fair. 
the literate hipsters read. And they're all telling you, you cannot be a good American, you cannot be a rational human being, and challenge the official story of 9-11. Now, this all starts with the collusion of our political leaders, those who have security clearances, they know much more than we do. And yet, they play act in public. They promote the mythology of 9-11. They do not permit any challenges. I can tell you this. In 2005, I personally handed the current Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, a copy of David Ray Griffin's first book, The New Pearl Harbor. I have never found out if she took time to read it or even have a staff member read it and give her a summary of it. But our political leaders, on a bipartisan basis, have colluded to suppress any challenges to the work of the 9-11 Commission and the official story. And as you may know, I attended a week's worth of the public hearings of the 9-11 Commission, and we'll probably refer to that in my conversation with Dr. Hughes. It was a whitewash, pure and simple. It was a public drama where the script had already been written. And then when the documents coming out of the commission were prepared, Philip Zelikow, who was a close ally of Condoleezza Rice, the Secretary of State, National Security Advisor to President Bush, he sanitized it. He suppressed important testimony, some of it relegated to a footnote, some of it just completely deleted. Oh, like Building 7. I've referenced the collusion and cooperation of the media. And today we're going to focus on the failure of the academic community to rigorously and independently investigate and critically review the public record about September 11, 2001. David A. Hughes holds undergraduate and master's degrees from the University of Oxford. He picked up his Ph.D. from Duke University here in the U.S., and he is currently a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Lincoln, and that's in Lincolnshire in England. And he's a member of the Organization for Propaganda Studies. And last year, he published a peer-reviewed article in the academic journal Alternatives. And... Uh, our, my friend and listener, Del Leonard, brought it to my attention. I contacted David Hughes, and he politely declined to be interviewed at that time because the fierce attacks that he was receiving for publishing this paper uh, caused him to say, uh, <laughs> I don't want to go there. David Hughes, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be with you. 
And uh, a little bit later, I want to talk in some detail about the uh, vicious attacks that you received. Uh, Just in a quick thumbnail at this point, uh, how have you weathered that? And do you feel that your reputation was damaged? Well, the attacks were remarkably short-lived, I think principally owing to an important intervention by Professor Tim Haywood, uh, who posted a blog post uh, about them, and that then created uh, publicity. And um, really, it stopped there and then uh, within a matter of days. Uh, I haven't uh, experienced any subsequent attacks. um, And in that regard, I would say that my uh, professional reputation uh, remains unblemished. Mm -hmm. But you did experience the whipping post called Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it was um, it was rather unpleasant uh, for a few days, and um, I was subjected to the kind of um, behaviour and attitudes that one would not um, expect to see uh, among a community that regards itself as uh, well educated, uh, informed, uh, and reasonable. And tell us a little bit about yourself. When did you uh, pick up your PhD at Duke? And uh, I'm curious, what drew you to uh, study in great detail our events of 9-11 and the official story? Well, Peter, it would take um, probably too long to, to, to go through everything. Um, the, the PhD uh, from Duke I picked up way back in, in 2006 now. Uh, that was in, in German studies. Um, but I've subsequently uh, switched field uh, to international relations um, now, I was quite late in coming to um, questioning the uh, official 9-11 narrative. Uh, for me, that only happened uh, in December 2016. Um, I'd been teaching US foreign policy uh, at Royal Holloway, University of London, uh, for a couple of years. Um, and I was thinking about the wars in uh, Afghanistan and the war in Vietnam, and certain similarities between those two conflicts. So, for example, they were both very long wars. They were both very costly. Uh, they both involved soldiers uh, getting P- PTSD uh, and so on. Uh, and, of course, we know that the major escalation of the Vietnam War in 1964 was prompted by the Gulf of Tonkin incident, uh, which we now know uh, was a false flag. Uh, and I was comparing this to the war in Afghanistan in my head, so... The pretext for the war in Afghanistan, of course, was 9-11, which, and that was the point at which it first occurred to me, could 9-11 also perhaps have been a false flag? And I still remember that. It was the 8th of December 2016. That was my my red pill date, uh, if you like. So um, it only really took about an hour of preliminary investigation for me to establish in my own mind that the official narrative uh, was false. Could you tick off the key factors that uh, in that short hour were persuasive to you? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I started with the damage to the World Trade Center uh, because, of course, that's the, the, the best known uh, element of this. Um, and the proverbial smoking gun, of course, is Building 7. Okay, It was not hit by a plane. And yet it spontaneously descended straight down into its own footprint uh, at free fall speed for two and a quarter seconds. Uh, its roof line remained near horizontal throughout. And anyone who has studied maths and physics to the age of 16 should know enough to understand that the only way that this could have happened 
is a simultaneous failure of all the core columns. And that's exactly what the Halsey report concluded in 2020 following a, a four-year investigation. Um, that is the Alaska, the, the Alaska University study? That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. University of Alaska Fairbanks um, mm-hmm. uh, study. Uh, um, and then, of course, the Twin Towers uh, themselves, which we are told uh, underwent a gravity-driven uh, collapse following a weakness, uh, weakening of their structures. Now, anyone can see from the video evidence that massive, heavy I-beams were ejected large distances horizontally. And again, one only needs a rudimentary understanding of vectors to realise that this horizontal force could not have been generated by a vertical collapse. So straight away, I realised that the official explanation of events uh, was bogus. Um, and I subsequently spent months and years uh, then researching the events of 9-11 for myself. I was quite amazed by how many layers of uh, deception have been placed in the way of discovering the truth. But the thing that bothered me most was always why it was, given this huge amount of evidence that can and should be brought against the official 9-11 narrative, so few academics have tried to do so. There are honourable exceptions, of course, but in the main, the academic community has simply fallen silent on the events of 9-11. Now, to me, this is inexcusable, given that the war on terror, with all of its horrific consequences, both foreign and domestic, is demonstrably premised on lies. My understanding of academia is that it is fundamentally about the pursuit of truth. So I wrote the paper with a view to compelling the academic community to look seriously at the evidence and to ask critical questions about the official 9-11 narrative instead of burying its head in the sand. And to your knowledge, have new voices from the academic community surfaced in reaction to your commentary uh, to join people like uh, Graham McQueen and David Ray Griffin and uh, Stephen uh, Jones and Dr. Judy Wood uh, to risk their academic careers. Uh, not, not in the case of Griffin. I'll separate him from that comment. But, uh, you know, he risked his reputation as a theologian uh, to uh, take on. He's, he's written countless books about it, and I've had many great conversations with, with Dr. Griffin. But have any new uh, voices joined this small group? Not really, is the uh, troubling answer to that. Um, Willem de Lint uh, published uh, an article in Globalizations uh, examining uh, the 9-11 crime uh, from a criminological uh, perspective, uh, and that chapter also features uh, in his his latest book. Um, But apart from that, no, I'm not aware of anybody else, any other academic anywhere in the world that has decided to uh, change course over this or to properly uh, look at uh, the evidence. And I do find this quite remarkable um, because I didn't know how the paper would be received, um, but I did think that it would at least create some debate, um, that it would at least lead um, some scholars to come out in support, other scholars to... Uh, be heavily critical, 
and at least get a discussion going about these issues. That was really the whole point of this, um, to actually get academics to engage in serious debate about the events of 9-11. And it's been truly remarkable uh, for me to witness the ongoing silence. Um, I mean, silence is a term that I use in the title of my article, and that silence continues. Um, For example, um, the article now on the publisher's website has had close to 22,000 views. Uh, So far, it's only been cited three times. Now, perhaps you'll say it's early days. It's it's, it's been 18 months. um, And, you know, nobody has a, a, a a right you know automatically to be cited or, or anything of that nature but but given the the uh, political significance of its content uh, i would have expected more uh, engagement uh, in the peer reviewed literature by now um or at the very least uh, for example on academic blogs uh, of which there are many thousands uh, around the world i'm not aware of any uh, major discussion of the article uh, on uh, academic blogs um, and of the email messages uh, that I have received since publishing uh, the article, of which there have been several thousand now, I could probably count the number of messages from academics on two hands. Hmm. So it's been absolutely remarkable. And as a sociological phenomenon, this really is in need of study, in my opinion. And uh, beyond me, and I have a magnificent uh, worldwide audience, David, but uh, I don't, you know, compare in any way <clears throat> with the reach of corporate media outlets. For example, uh, to promote the mythology, uh, CNN, the news channel here in the U.S., is doing a one-hour special following the lives of the students who were being read My Pet Goat by George W. Bush at the moment that the uh, first plane hit the World Trade Center. And this locks in the mythology, uh, doesn't challenge the official story, and it makes the bizarre behavior of the president that day appear somehow folksy. And and this is just one example. And, and you know, I, I've never been a big fan of anniversary journalism, uh, just based on the fact that, uh, you know, a date rolls around. But uh, the corporate media is heavily invested in that. This 20-year marker is really significant. And not only is there no critical look at the events of 9-11, as we uh, uh, stumble out of Afghanistan uh, with drone strikes that kill children, uh, just like we have been doing uh, for two decades now, wedding parties and other civilian groups, were the subject of uh, misfires by American missiles and drones. Uh, the media is focusing on, on celebrating the bravery of the American soldiers who have been trying to hold down uh, the last vestiges there at the Karzai Airport in Kabul. And so the media malpractice is extreme and clear, and I want to couple that with the uh, – the, the crassness of both television and Hollywood films, because they, too, have locked in the official story uh, for the purpose of, of spy dramas. Uh, they will go through scenarios that, that are similar to the false flag that you and I believe uh, 9-11 is. But they never really uh, close the deal 
or or complete the thought to say, well, you know, maybe we should be looking at that official story. And so this this incredible um, group uh, group experience in brainwashing is a phenomenon that uh, has rarely occurred in my lifetime. Yeah, and as much as anything else, 9-11 was a psychological operation and still is. Um, now, you can perhaps at some level understand the political class closing ranks on an issue as potentially explosive uh, as this. Um, an obvious example, of course, is Donald Trump, who there's video footage of him on the day. He knew something wasn't right uh, about what was happening. Um, he appealed to his supporters on the campaign trail uh, in 2016 uh, based on um, um, kind of a sceptical sentiment towards 9-11. Uh, but once he took office, of course, nothing nothing was done. Um, you might also, at one level, understand the the media's complicity in this. Um, when you understand the kind of uh, corporate structures that exist with, in America, for example, all of the many hundreds of different media outlets ultimately being controlled by the same five or six uh, mega corporations, you, you can see how that might work. And journalism well at at its best can be a, a a great thing but but nobody necessarily uh, expects to to get the truth per se from from a newspaper everybody understands that there's always a a certain level of um of, of bias and uh, agendas and satisfying uh, advertiser preferences and and so on but the thing i find so surprising and so shocking has been the complicity of the academic community in all of this, because this is a community which prides itself on critical thinking, independent thinking, rigorous thinking, uh, getting to the truth, uh, in some sections, speaking truth to power. Um, and you really would have expected, wouldn't you, to have found many more academics speaking out um, against the obvious problems with the official narrative. Um, you mentioned David Ray Griffin. He, I mean, he's made many contributions, but I think his most important contribution uh, was his book called The 9-11 Commission Report, Omissions and Distortions. Mm -hmm. Now, this is, a, this is a full professor who systematically picks apart the 9-11 Commission Report and demonstrates conclusively why it is not to be trusted. Now, that book came out in 2005. That was 16 years ago. Okay, the, the, the academic community has had this in its arsenal for 16 years. And yet in that time, relatively little literature that is genuinely critical of the events of 9-11, of the official narrative of 9-11 has been produced. Of course, there's, there's mountains on what happened after 9-11 and, and the war on terror and the way 9-11 has been interpreted and, and all of this kind of thing. But in terms of a, of, a, of a critical look at what we are told happened and what the evidence shows happened, there's been shockingly little. And <clears throat> David, sometimes uh, scatological language uh, is called for. 
you uh, referenced the psychological operation. And one of the key elements of that in my view, and I'm not trained in psychology, is a cynical and diabolical mindfuck element. And that is to challenge the official narrative, you have to explore alternatives. And, and I want to be clear that I've never embraced any particular alternative scenario because I feel the cover-up has been so effective that I don't have enough evidence to logically advance one. It doesn't mean I haven't uh, processed them and considered them, but for public consumption, uh, I generally don't uh, uh, go into that territory. But when you do, you have to see such uh, dark forces at play where uh, a government would engage in or permit events like this to occur in order to enable uh, the uh, pursuit of political and geopolitical goals, mostly for profit, some for empire and influence, And uh, some of this relates to a long-running effort by the United States on what we consider a covert basis, but it's only covert to Americans who don't challenge the orthodoxy, and and that is to divide the Shia and Sunni Muslim communities worldwide and pit each against the other in order for Western uh, uh, powers— to manipulate and benefit. So that was a long-winded comment, but I'd like to hear yours in response. Well, Peter, um, first of all, I would agree with you that um, I personally don't have a theory um, about what 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 did happen uh, on 9-11 um, for the same reasons that you mentioned, that we simply don't know enough. Um And one of the reasons that we don't know enough is because the academic community has vacated that space. Mm -hmm. And into that space have rushed all manner of different theories. Some of them, as you mentioned in your introduction, are preposterous. Uh, Others uh, seem to have uh, some evidence uh, in their favour. But it's still unclear exactly what happened. There are many outstanding questions. And personally, having been exploring this now for four or five years, I find it infuriating uh, that I still couldn't tell you on, on, on certain basic issues um, what what I think actually happened, because I just don't know. Um, so that is one major consequence um, of academia abnegating its responsibility to, to look into these questions. It's just left immense confusion. Now, as for the kind of mindset that you describe well um i think ultimately a lot of this can be taken back to um for example the mk ultra program uh the development of mind control techniques uh, by the cia in the 1950s and the 1960s um I believe we're seeing a lot of this being played out in the present also uh, with regard to COVID. But there does seem to me to be a certain kind of trauma-based mind control at work, um, which involves um, 
what Naomi Klein uh, in her book called the shock doctrine. Mm-hmm. So you create a massive shock of whatever kind. It could be psychological. It could be economic. It, it could be to, to, to social ties and, and so on. You completely disorientate people. Um, and in that key moment of shock, you then implant messages. So think back to when the planes first hit the towers. Um, after the second plane hit, I think it only took 45 seconds for the mainstream media to drop the name Osama bin Laden. Yeah. So you have this moment of shock. No one knows what they're looking at. It's inherently traumatic, of course, to see people jumping out of buildings and thousands of people dying in this spectacular act of destruction but you drop in the key messages and of course all the talking heads are very quickly on to oh it must be al-qaeda it must be bin laden um there must be some kind of um muslim link here and it's a form of psychological programming um and i think people i think this is a key area of research um that hasn't yet been done um, but the extent to which this can be done to a whole society um, and not just to, to, to individuals uh, in a lab, because there have to be reasons um, why this narrative has remained relatively unquestioned yeah. um, and for, David, for, just, for, just, for so long. Just a quick anecdote. Uh, on 9-11, uh, my partner and I happened to be vacationing in Barcelona in Spain. And two days later, we're in a a falafel joint, and uh, the owner quickly deduced that I'm American. And he came out from behind the counter, and there was a stack of tabloid newspapers on one of the tables. And he'd obviously uh, already read one of them, and he's flipping through the pages. And at about page six, uh, there's a picture of Osama bin Laden. This is three days after the, uh, the events. And uh, he ripped that page out, he crumpled it into a ball, he popped it into his mouth, and he chewed it and he swallowed it. And he looked at me and he said, you tell Bush, I'll get bin Laden. Now, the reach of that propaganda in such a short period of time reminds me of the phrase that a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can get his pants on. (laughs) Mm. And when you see how quickly it was absorbed, um, how uh, people took it as a matter of faith that this was the only explanation and that it is now baked into the minds of uh, a large part of the population, but we need to hasten to add that there is a huge population in other parts of the world that doesn't believe it and that this creates the kind of schism that leaves the United States as a declining superpower uh, that has failed uh, in these uh, military operations uh, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, where we pretend our involvement was covert, in Libya, uh, under the Obama administration. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, Yemen is, is another one of these scenes. Uh, and, and so 
it, it is so remarkable when we look at the uh, willful denial of large masses of highly educated people, and it brings us back to your critique of the academic community. And let me quote from your paper. Uh, you cite Professor Emeritus Professor Morgan Reynolds. The response of the academic community when the official conspiracy theory of 9-11 was challenged has been primarily a deafening silence with a few notable exceptions. The academy, despite the security of many of tenure, has thus far not been much of a force for truth about 9-11. And then uh, McMaster University's uh, retired professor, Graham McQueen. Uh, I also have a podcast interview with uh, Professor McQueen. You can access through the search window at peterbcollins.com. He says that uh, the universities are sleeping so soundly you can hear the snoring from outer space. He does have a good sense of humor. And he said, for many... Oh, and then you quote Andrew Johnson of Open University. Uh, For many who are more deeply embedded in the educational academic establishment, it seems that they are unable to confront or dispassionately analyze the evidence for themselves. So this is as pervasive as it is among the general population. Yeah, and again, I mean, as as I said in the intro, um, I only came to this in December 2016. So I, I have great sympathy for people uh, who just can't see it, haven't seen it. There are good reasons for this. Um, the, the propaganda has been intense. The perception management by the mainstream media has been relentless. And particularly in the early days, um, I mean, who would really believe um, that something like this could happen, that the cover-up could be so extensive that so many lies could be told on such a big scale. I mean, you you mentioned the big lie earlier, and that's actually a concept that goes back to Hitler, uh, the concept of the big lie, a, a lie which is so great that the ordinary person couldn't even comprehend that it's possible to tell a lie on that scale. Um, and, of course, 20 years ago, Nobody really, um, no ordinary people, very few ordinary members of the public would have known anything about false flag operations. They wouldn't even have heard of it. So I can understand how very few questions were asked for several years. But the issue I have is when it gets to about 2005, 2006, 2007, and multiple organisations are being formed from pilots or architects and engineers um, when people like you mentioned Morgan Reynolds and and Judy Wood are are actually bringing legal cases uh, to uh, to, to challenge this narrative. Then there's something that needs to be looked at. Um, And this is the point at which um, um, certain publications um, did begin to uh, appear um, which I cite in, in, in my article, um, and there was a, 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 a kind of a, a flickering of academic interest at this point. And yet, mostly, it disappeared after that. And I think probably because some academics lost their jobs, others were heavily censured. And, and it really dried up, and the interest moved on to the war on terror. And the events themselves still remain 
largely unexamined. It's a, a remarkable phenomenon. And David, uh, for us, Trump uh, set a new low standard of saying the secret parts out loud. But uh, it occurred during the Bush administration. The initial investigations into 9-11 were a joint committee of the Senate and the House, chaired by uh, uh, retired Senator Bob Graham of Florida. And Graham, to his credit, has narrowly uh, pursued challenges related to the official story, in particular the Saudi families uh, that were in South Florida uh, and the curious uh, aspects of, of that story that were suppressed uh, for so very long. Uh, but uh, the Bush administration initially proposed that the commission, which was prompted by uh, survivors, by the so-called Jersey girls and the families of, of 9-11 victims, uh, they proposed to have Henry Kissinger preside over it. Now, that was so blatant. And then they dialed back and they trotted out these two, uh, you know, schlubs, uh, uh, Governor Kane of New Jersey and Lee Hamilton, a, a former congressman from Indiana, who were reliable insiders who could uh, take the whole box of crayons and be sure to only color inside the lines. And I witnessed this uh, in the open hearings, the public hearings of the commission. Let me briefly tell the story about Donald Rumsfeld testifying. He was the secretary of defense. The Pentagon was hit on 9-11. And he uh, was asked under oath by one of the more aggressive, and that's a mild statement on the part of the commissioners of this uh, panel, uh, Richard Benvenista, uh, did you order planes scrambled to defend the Pentagon on the morning of 9-11? And Rumsfeld, looking at the clock, could see that uh, the time was running short. And so he repeated the question. He said, did I order planes? You know, like, what did I have for breakfast that day? And uh, then, dutifully, Governor Kane brought the gavel down, said, time's up, next commissioner. A simple question like that was never answered. And the whole story about NORAD having these uh, uh, war games on 9-11 – the jumbled communications when the reports came in asking for uh, an air response and the, the people on one end of the phone are saying, well, is this real world? And uh, the, the misdirection of the, the planes that were sent in from uh, the Barnstable Air Force Base in Massachusetts uh, when there were you know, assets that were much closer – uh, I, I mean, there are just so many of these things that surface. And I, I want to add one more item about the 9-11 Commission. Uh, I have a podcast interview with a man named Bogdan Zakovich, and he was a member of the Federal Aviation Administration's Red Team. It was his job to uh, examine the security features at different airports, and he wrote a scathing report and provided testimony to the Commission. And it is only referenced in a two-line footnote in the official report. And so the way that it was massaged and sanitized uh, is very clear to anyone who takes a critical look. 
And because you're the one with the uh, expertise in uh, Deutsche, in German, could you explain for our listeners uh, Gleichschaltung? Yeah, so this was a, a phenomenon um, witnessed um, before, actually, and during uh, Nazi Germany. Um, and it's where academics essentially all fell into line um, with the same uh, official narrative. Um, and um, after 1945, it really puzzled people. How could this have happened in Germany? How could this have been the case? Why did nobody speak out? Why did nobody challenge Hitler? Why did nobody look to prevent the rise of the Nazis um, from within the from within the academic community? And what actually happened was it went many stages worse because academics were complicit in, um, for example, designing plans for the war of annihilation in the East. They were complicit in designing the plans for the gas chambers and so on. So all the warnings uh, from history are there. But this this whole idea of um, of, of of very problematic. Um, academic complicity goes back to Nazi Germany. And this is what the Gleichschaltung phenomenon was. And in, in many respects, this was um, it certainly forced after 1933. But when you look carefully, you, you can even find before 1933 um, evidence of, of, of tendencies um, uh, of academics refusing um, to, uh, to, to, to challenge the, the, the rise of the Nazis. So there are precedents uh, in history. Um, and unfortunately, not just in this regard, but in so many others, um, it does appear that the um, the legacy of the 1930s is with us again today. Um, and I think all of the alarm bells from history are now sounding. And this is even more why it's so important for academics to speak out if they can see what they know uh, to be wrong, um, if they have the power um, through their own uh, academic skill set to challenge core narratives, core assumptions that are being used to do tremendous harm, then academics, I think, have a moral obligation to speak out. We're talking with Dr. David Hughes here on the Peter B. Collins podcast. The paper that he wrote is called 9-11 Truth and the Silence of the IR Discipline. That's International Relations Discipline. And I will be linking to it in the text file that accompanies this podcast. And I encourage you to read it. Uh, we can't cover everything that uh, is in his, his detailed critique here. Uh, but I do encourage you to uh, pick it up it, take you maybe an hour to read it, and uh, it, it is, I consider it to be quite persuasive. David, one of the things I wanted to discuss with you in a uh, gentle disagreement is uh, the findings of Dr. Judy Wood. And I'll just say that uh, I'm a little bit, I lean more when we explore these theories of how the buildings came down at the World Trade Center. Uh, I lean more to the uh, uh, thermite uh, 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 theories of Dr. Stephen Jones. And I have uh, lightly, I want to make clear that I've never deeply studied uh, Judy Wood's findings. I scanned her book and I've looked at some of the uh, visual evidence that she continues to post online. And her theory of a directed energy weapon, uh, I, I do find intriguing 
But ultimately, I, I feel like uh, there isn't enough evidence that these devices actually exist. Still, I want to say that uh, the visual evidence that she provides, uh, uh, which she describes as uh, dustification, where the concrete and steel really was converted to dust, and, and that's quite graphic in the images of the falling towers and the debris field uh, that, that remained. Uh, so I do not dismiss her work, but ultimately I didn't find it as persuasive, and I think you do find it that. So please uh, tell us why. Um, well, for the benefit of your listeners, um, I'm holding up here uh, a copy of Dr. Wood's book, Where Did the Towers Go? Mm-hmm. Um, and you say you scanned it, Peter. Um, I've read it in some detail uh, many times. Um, now, I think my fundamental view here is that Dr. Wood is much maligned. Um, I do think that there are certain flaws in her work, and I'm willing to discuss those. But I also think that those flaws are massively outweighed by her close inspection of the evidence. I think Where Did the Towers Go is by far the most comprehensive forensic investigation available of the tower's destruction. And I do think that she asks some of the most important questions uh, about the destruction of the towers. Now, you've said straight away that she proposes a theory of directed energy weapons. Um, I'd suggest that that's an immediate misreading uh, of this book. Um, The book doesn't present a theory as such. The book presents evidence and it asks questions about evidence. Now, I think that there are two key areas that we need to discuss in the case of Dr. Wood. The first is how her work has been received and attacked and censored. And the second is the actual uh, content of her work. And if it's all right with you, uh, Peter, I'd I'd quite like to get into both. Please. Um, Mm -hmm. So the first thing to say is the reception of um, Judy Wood's uh, work. Um, Now, she's been attacked and censored from the very beginning. And you have to ask why that's the case. Now, Today, it's widely known that Wikipedia is a controlled platform uh, run by the intelligence agencies. So, for example, any of your listeners can try posting a link to to my article uh, or to Dr. Judy Wood on Wikipedia. It will be taken down within minutes. You can actually see for yourself how it works. Um, Now, Wikipedia has never allowed a page to be made about Dr. Judy Wood. Okay, this is going back over 10 years now. So that in and of itself, I think, shows that she's over the target in some important way. Um, And in contrast, there are Wikipedia pages for Stephen E. Jones and architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Now, institutionally, the 9-11 Truth movement is dominated by architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, which has always been hostile towards Dr. Wood. She's barely mentioned on their website, which states, and I quote, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth which supports the controlled demolition theory, does not ally itself with those who posit other theories. Uh, The organisation once advised researchers to refine its Google searches to, quote, determine any correlation to questionable ideologies 
and these included directed energy weapons, Judy Wood, Jews, Holocaust, and Zionism. So you can see the way this is working. Richard Gage claims that Judy Wood, quote, denies evidence of explosions, molten metal, and nanothermite. Now, again, this language of denial is always suspect. It's like climate change denial, COVID denial. It's a rhetorical device that's used to close down scientific debate by tacitly invoking Holocaust denial. Now, I'm afraid that's not how science works, okay? The nanothermite explanation of the Twin Towers is one hypothesis among many, mm -hmm. um, and it is open to testing. Indeed. Now, the and, original and, manuscript... And, and let me yeah. just interject that... Uh, I as well uh, am offended by the uh, the often trivial and uh, irrational use of anti-Semitism as a way to deflect any criticism of the state of Israel, its policies, and its potential complicity. And uh, we know from uh, Jonathan Pollard, from the uh, Liberty, from... Uh, many other experiences that Israel uh, has played a double game with the United States and engaged in nefarious activities. And so to uh, just exclude them and then uh, button it up with a claim of anti-Semitism for anybody who proceeds in that direction is something that I find deeply uh, intellectually offensive. Thank you, Peter. Um, I'd, I'd agree with that um, for sure. Now, um, you had Stephen E. Jones uh, on your show uh, some time ago. Uh, you sent me the link. I, I listened to the interview. And it's very interesting when he was asked about um, Dr. Wood um, because he resorted to caricature and straw manning uh, in order to address her. So, for example, uh, he referred to the amount of energy required to pulverize a building top down uh, as exceeding the entire energy of the world by a factor of seven. So therefore, what Wood is claiming can't be possible, except that Dr. Wood explicitly rules out the idea of pulverization. Um, another key way of trying to discredit her is to use this idea of space beams. Uh, Stephen E. Jones said, if the beam comes down from space, well, you know, that's not what Dr. Wood is arguing. Read the book. Uh, look, at the, look at it for yourself. Um, Jones claimed that the towers were not dustified. And yet in a 2007 article, he himself wrote that the towers were, and I quote, turned mostly to powder in midair, a remarkable, amazing phenomenon. So what you find is that many people who are sceptical of the official 9-11 narrative get drawn into the dominant alternative narrative, which is nanothermite and controlled demolition uh, as proposed uh, by architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. And this then in turn skews their perception uh, of Dr. Wood's work. Um, they typically don't buy the book for themselves. It's not cheap. Uh, they typically don't read it, and they typically rely on what other people have said about Judy Wood. Now, to give an example of how far this goes, when the original manuscript of my article was accepted for publication following peer review, it was with the proviso that the Judy Wood content be removed on the basis that it detracted from its intellectual credibility. Really? So that was the effective price of admission to a peer-reviewed journal that I had to pay. 
although more astute readers of my article will note that Wood's presence can still be quietly felt in mm-hmm. several parts of the paper. Indeed. And then immediately after the publication of my article, I was contacted by a physics professor letting me know that I should not have mentioned Judy Wood at all in my article, because what she proposes is, quote, impossible physics. So I asked him to explain some of the evidence adduced by Wood. And we then had a lengthy email exchange, which culminated in me asking whether they had even read Dr. Wood's book. They admitted they had not. In academia, criticising someone else's work without having read it is a cardinal sin. Yet when it comes to attacking Judy Wood, nothing seems off limits. So that's really the first part of what I had to say um, about Judy Wood in terms of and, and David, the reception of her work. Before you go to the second, I, I just want to acknowledge uh, uh, my own bias. And that is that uh, I started interviewing Richard Gage when he only had like a dozen signatories to his architects and engineers group. And I welcomed the apparent rigor uh, and discipline that he was bringing to a a much more technical approach to the investigation that was uh, a step above the uh, amateur videographers uh, who were creating a lot of the uh, truth content in the early stages. And so uh, I do want to separate myself from uh, these uh, ad hominem attacks on Dr. Wood. And uh, again, I admit my own uh, uh, shortcoming here that I did not read her book. Uh, I, I had a copy and I, I, as I said, I scanned it. But I did rely on the representations of, uh, of Gage and his cohorts. And uh, I appreciate that you uh, have, have detailed uh, your, your support for Dr. Wood's work. And I bring this to my listeners, uh, you know, with an open mind and say, uh, you should evaluate this, you should decide, and you should get Judy Wood's book. And uh, I'm going to have to crack it out of my library. And you have prodded me here. And uh, I will certainly study it more closely. So to your second point, sir. Yeah, okay. So, um, I mean, the, the, the second point is what what is Wood's work actually telling us? Now, I'll reiterate, I don't agree with all of it. I do think that there are certain flaws in this work. But it produces a unique evidence base. There's nothing else like it when it comes to looking at the evidence regarding the destruction of the Twin Towers. And it asks some very, very important questions, which I think remain largely unexplained. So the first question is in the title, where did the towers go? Okay, these were gigantic 110-storey buildings, and there were two of them. And yet you can see from the photographic evidence that immediately after their destruction, the debris was more or less at ground level. So where did it all go? Now, To be sure, that debris was spread over a wide diameter, but relative to the size of the buildings, this is a a remarkable uh, phenomenon. Um, And again, when you look at the videos, the video evidence, you can see most of these buildings actually turning to dust before they hit the ground. Um, And of course, there was no seismic data to corroborate two tall buildings slamming hard to the ground. Indeed, if they had of collapsed and slammed to the ground and been pulverised as they hit the floor. Then as Wood asks, why was 
the bathtub, as she calls it, the, the underground concrete structure surrounding the base of the towers, why was that not obliterated? Why did the seismic signals not detect that? Um, she points to the survivors on stairwell B. Um, again, this is extraordinary, but there was a group of people about eight stories up on a stairwell who somehow survived the destruction of the towers. Now, if the towers had collapsed straight down, they would no way have survived. So that stands in need of explanation. Toasted cars in nearby car parks. Now, again, this is something which I don't find the nanothermite hypothesis persuasive in explaining. Um, so these are cars where parts of the car appear completely burned out, while other parts of the car are undamaged. It's, it's really peculiar. Sometimes you see so-called toasted cars parked to so, next to so-called untoasted cars. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know what could explain this. Um, Andrew Johnson, um, at the start of his book, 9-11, Holding the Truth, has two remarkable pictures of the same bus parked close to World Trade Center 7. Um, in one picture, World Trade Center 7 is still standing. In the second picture, it's fallen. And so you can see that this is over the course of several hours. And for some reason, the metalwork on this bus, you can see it's degraded over the course of time. But why? What would explain that? How could nanothermite do that? Um, how could jet fuel do that? And then, of course, we have things like the, 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 the so-called meteorite, the strange fusion of steel and concrete that was discovered in the wreckage. Uh, what fuses steel and concrete in this way? Well, some people claim high temperatures, maybe, but if so, then what explains a Bible that was discovered fused into steel and concrete as well, with its top page still perfectly legible? Okay, high temperatures uh, don't explain that. Um, then we have some rather peculiar effects witnessed in the steels, uh, a certain Swiss cheese effect with holes in the middle of the beams, the mysteriously bent horseshoe beam and what Dr. Wood calls rolled up carpets. These were vertical beams mysteriously folding around their vertical axis instead of being crushed from above. I've seen that. Yeah. Um, and on and on it goes. Why did some of the dust produced in the destruction go up while the rest went down? Why was some of the dust at the nanoscale? What explained the so-called fuming from ground zero for over 100 days? Mm -hmm. uh, personally, I don't think that that was steam. And most importantly of all, I think, and I think what's really at stake here, the really big issue, is implicit in everything that is in this book is the big question. Is cold fusion real? Now, this is a huge topic which we won't have time to, 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 to get into here. But if it were real, then and and the kinds of the kinds of processes, the kind of technologies that, that Wood is considering here are um, would lend support to the possibility of cold fusion. Then let me read a, a, a short passage from a 1998 Wired article. It goes as follows. If low temperature fusion does exist and can be perfected, power generation could be decentralized. Each home could heat itself and produce its own electricity, probably using a form of water as fuel. Even automobiles might be cold fusion powered. Massive generators and ugly power lines could be eliminated, along with imported oil and our contribution to the greenhouse effect. Moreover, according to some experimental data, low temperature fusion doesn't create significant hazardous radiation or radioactive waste. In other words, if it's real, then we really do away with all 
energy security uh, problems. So there are massive geopolitical implications here. And this is why this kind of research into cold fusion has been closed down. And one important thing to realise is that long before 9-11, Stephen E. Jones was involved in the attempt to close down this kind of uh, research. So I think there's a lot here which which needs to be um, paid attention to. Um, and I think the key issue, which which really needs addressing in some detail, has to do, of course, with the, the temperatures. Now, the nanothermite hypothesis has it that very high temperatures, about 450 degrees um, at least, were involved in the destruction of the towers. So, for example, if you read the 2009 uh, paper, it's a key paper um, by Stephen E. Jones, Niels Harris and others. Um, it talks about, firstly, quote, a bright flash on ignition, and secondly, quote, very high temperatures. Now, the way they defend this paper, of, of course, is to say, well, this is a, an analysis of dust samples using very complicated chemical uh, uh, forms of chemical analysis and spectroscopy and so on, which, of course, the layman cannot challenge. But I just put it to a, a common sense test, um, really, here. Um, if we have this nanothermite going off and it's bright orange and, you know, and, and it's all levels of the towers allegedly have been kind of somehow wired or sprayed with this stuff. Surely we would have seen very bright flashes all over the place. You know, the towers might instantaneously have glowed orange. The smoke might have, have, have been orange. There'd, there'd have been very clear evidence of that kind of orange uh, tinge um, that's often associated with nanothermite. But of course, we didn't see any of that. Um, if you look at it, there are a few tiny pinpricks of light here and there. But in the main, what we have is this gigantic grey cloud of dust as the buildings just dustify, to use uh, Dr Wood's phrase. Um, and as for the temperatures, if it required hundreds of degrees, possibly more, to destroy these towers, then why were the dust clouds not hot enough to burn and maim people okay there are some reports that are kind of a warm wind or maybe even a hot wind um kind of accompanied them through the streets but these weren't the kind of temperatures which did significant mm -hmm. harm to anybody yeah and yet at the same time proponents of the nanothermite hypothesis are saying well the toasted cars got toasted because you had these furiously hot dust clouds going through the, the streets, scorching the paint off them, destroying all the windows, etc., cetera, um, making the tyres vanish. Um, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't pass the, the common sense test. And mm -hmm. you often hear talk about the, the molten metal as well. And again, I think this needs, this needs looking at in more detail. Um, yes, there are reports, um, many reports, of uh, molten metal um, underneath the ground at ground zero. Um, but as Judy Wood mentions in her book, well, first of all, let me quote Stephen E. Jones again from 2006, quote, for six months after September the 11th, the ground temperature varied between 600 degrees Fahrenheit and 1,500 degrees, sometimes higher. Right. Now, bear in mind that those unfortunate souls, some of them who were trapped above the plane impacts, 
jumped out of a skyscraper to avoid heat rising from burning kerosene and office fires, which was probably not as hot as that. Now, we know that the slurry wall beneath the World Trade Center was about 70 feet deep. That's about seven stories. So how is it then that first responders were able to walk around just a few stories above a 1300 degree Celsius inferno um, when other people had previously had to jump out of windows uh, to avoid similar temperatures? Why was the water on the site not instantly turning to steam? Why were the fire hoses not melting? Why was there paper everywhere? Why did the paper not burn? Um, where actually are the photographs of molten metal running underground? Um, I'm struggling to find them. There are some images of what appears to be molten metal above ground, um, but there are alternative explanations uh, for, for how that could have been um, formed, uh, including um, the, the processes used to cut through some of the, the remaining beams. So, mm -hmm. you know, th there are many, many big questions here um, to look at. And well, David, I, really I, th I thank you for detailing those. And I just want to acknowledge that some of it, some of it goes well beyond uh, my own scientific knowledge. But you, you do raise important questions. Uh, and this really, to me, drives back at the central theme of your paper. And that is that we are not permitted to properly investigate to uncover the evidence, to blow the lid off the cover-up in order to come to any, uh, you know, rational and reasonable conclusions. And I appreciate the, uh, uh, the detailed argument that you brought here and the comparative look at uh, the nanothermite versus the dustification theories. Uh, where I'd like to close this part is another quote from your paper, uh, citing Professor McQueen from Canada. If 9-11 was a false flag, then academics have been complicit in maintaining the pretense that it was not. And by extension, they are complicit in the horrific consequences that have flowed from 9-11 because they failed to challenge the great lie on which everything was based. Quoting McQueen, it takes a certain intellectual courage to question a story that is being promoted so heavily by virtually every government in the world as well as the mainstream media. So uh, I think that this is important and thought-provoking work that you've done. Again, I'm going to link to your paper, and I encourage our listeners to read it. And as we wrap up here, I want to, as I promised at the outset, ask you to give us a, a description of the 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 really foul blowback that you received from fellow academics after this paper was published some 18 months ago. And so many of them took to Twitter, the digital cheap shot piss on the leg platform, <laughs> to uh, attack you. And I presume these are people who don't have any prior knowledge of you or your work. Yeah, that's correct. And um I mean, I don't want to dwell on it for too long because it was, it was a fairly unsavory uh, episode, but it's very sad. Um, I mean, it was clear to me that none of these uh, academics had actually read the paper. Um, it was a very much a kind of a knee-jerk response. And, of course, the irony is in the paper, uh, I actually talk about the problem of knee-jerk reactions and particularly the term conspiracy theorist. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, this came up immediately so in a sense it shows how kind of psychologically conditioned 
um, these these academics are. Um, and as I said before, academics are supposed to be reasonable, thoughtful, well-informed people who take the time to assess evidence, not behave uh, in this manner. Um, I do think that it's opened onto a, a wider problem in academia, which is much more important than what happened to me. Um, and that's in the, 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 the current COVID context. And evidence seems to be emerging now that academics are hunting in packs, trying to silence anyone who speaks out against the official narrative, including their own colleagues. Now, I find this very disturbing. So to give just a few examples, um, we've seen it in 19 Yale academics publishing an open letter against their own colleague, Harvey Risch, over hydroxychloroquine. We've seen it in the New York University gang-up against Mark Crispin Miller that's led to him suing his own colleagues. We've seen it in Stanford academics signing an open letter against their erstwhile colleague, Scott Atlas. In the absence of any proper scientific debate, there is merely an attempt to manufacture a scientific consensus that doesn't exist by bullying and coercing sceptics in order to support an official narrative that is scientifically unsupportable. And and just a, a real obvious example of this, David, in, in the more popular world <clears throat> is the, uh, uh, the, the, the ban that was basically imposed uh, during the first year of the pandemic on discussing the origins of it. And now uh, that has been lifted as uh, we're permitted to discuss. Was it a leak from the Wuhan lab? Was it uh, an intentional, uh, uh, you know, uh, deployment of this as a biological weapon? But even that is circumscribed because we never consider the U.S. bioweapons lab as a possible source, even though we know that in August of 2019, uh, there was some incident there that's been hushed up uh, that, that could or could not be related to the origins of the novel coronavirus. And so I, I agree with you. I, uh, uh, I, I've been a little conflicted because I fully support Mark Crispin Miller. He's a longtime colleague uh, in his battle for his academic freedom, and he should not be silenced by his own university. Uh, I also feel that uh, in some of his blog posts and other uh, public commentary, that he has fed uh, theories and ideas that I don't find uh, to be persuasive or sustainable. But I can separate those two. And I want the vibrant discussion. Uh, I, you know, we're, we're now seeing the corporate media in this country uh, denounce ivermectin. Uh, and there is, you know, an animal formulation of that uh, that is probably not appropriate for humans. But that's being used, uh, you know, as a fringe argument to dismiss any honest evaluation of whether ivermectin, which is also uh, put in a human formulation, uh, is effective in treating early stage infections. And so uh, this has been a heavily managed uh, uh, <laughs> narrative that uh, in some ways does uh, parallel uh, the experience with 9-11. And, and I want to close by commenting on the efforts by filmmaker Spike Lee 
Uh, he was hired by HBO to produce a four-part documentary about 9-11. And uh, he was forced uh, – the, the term spike is used in newsrooms – when the management tells you that the story you researched and wrote is not going to be published. And Spike Lee was spiked. Uh, he was told by HBO management to remove uh, an entire half-hour portion of the final installment, the final episode of his series, which did include representatives from architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and other critics of the official narrative. And uh, the official gatekeeper of this is the New York Times on August 26th under the headline, Spike Lee removes conspiracists from HBO 9-11 series after criticism. And I counted six uses of the term conspiracy or conspiracy theories uh, in this article. And the propaganda weight of that terminology behind the effort to seal off any challenge to the official narrative of 9-11 is just so blatantly obvious and uh, that people cannot look at that and see how they are being controlled and manipulated is, uh, to me, a great tragedy of this era. Yeah, and I write in my article um, about how the mainstream media go after critics of official narratives. Um, for example, I cite smears against Dr. Piers Robinson by the Huffington Post and the Sunday Times. Um, now, what we're seeing today is that these kinds of attempts at censorship, are, uh, they're just off the chart now. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, the attempts to intimidate and coerce anyone uh, who thinks other than the officially prescribed way uh, are extremely fierce. Um, free speech is now under very heavy attack. And in a sense... You reap what you sow. Um, you know, the, the failure of academics to, to speak out on the 9-11 issue has only added to this insidious destruction of democracy um, and this creeping totalitarianism um, and the, the gradual transformation of liberal democracies uh, into police states where um, there are just certain things that you're not allowed to say. Uh, here in the UK... Um, something called the Online Safety Bill um, is uh, under consideration by Parliament. Now, if that passes in the near future, it will essentially mark the end of online free speech in the UK um, because we'll have essentially kind of a British version of a Chinese firewall. Mm -hmm. um, it will require online platforms to – it would legally require online platforms to delete content that is deemed by the regulator – to be what it calls lawful but harmful. So in other words, you can post something which is actually perfectly within your rights of freedom of expression, is perfectly lawful, but because the regulator doesn't like it, it can be removed. So, of course, it's being sold under the pretext of combating pornography and trolling and that kind of thing. But you can see straight away that it's going to be used to silence dissidents. And the reason for that is that the truth about these events and these narratives is on the brink of overwhelming the lies that the public are being told and and have been told. So in a sense, this, this obscene level of censorship smacks of desperation. The powers that be know that they are losing control of the narrative and they know that the only way of maintaining control of that narrative 
is by forcibly seeking to silence the truth. But if there's perhaps a, a more upbeat way to, to end this interview, the problem that the powers that be face is that more and more people are waking up. More and more people are coming to see the truth and understand the truth. And the thing is, once awake, they stay awake. Dr. David Hughes, you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you for your courage, your intellectual honesty, and your commitment to the fundamentals of truth. It's been a pleasure, Peter. Send your comments to Peter at PeterBCollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails.